Welcome back to the Tough Stuff series, volume eight. And this is the first episode since my book launched. It's been a little overwhelming watching the book come to life and become a bestseller in two countries and a number one new release in Australia, Canada, the UK, and the United States. I owe a huge thank you to everyone who purchased the book so far. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more and more stories about how the tough stuff resonates with you and your experience. My guest on this episode is a longtime friend of mine, Emil Studham. If the name rings a bell, it might be because I wrote about Emil and his company, Performance by Design, in Where Others Won't, my first book. PBD are a culture consultancy who take methodologies tested in the pro sports arena and apply them to corporate and government environments. In this conversation, though, Emil and I focus on communication, specifically the real talk framework that PBD use to help leaders that are stuck. The Tough Stuff series, volume eight, is with Emil Studham. Emil Studham, how are you, mate? Cody Royal, how are you, sir? Good. Does it bug you that it's taken this long to get you on the show? Or <laughs> Loaded question to start with. It does a bit, actually. I, I was actually going to – it's in my little notes here to have a go at you for taking so long. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's good to have a chat. We have these chats probably weekly and, yeah, and yeah, so much to cover – Really looking forward to, to going deep with you rather than wide. Yeah. Um, and let me tee this up a little bit because I wrote about you and your work and performance by design in Where Others Won't. Yep. And the reason that I did that wasn't because you're a mate. It was because what stood out to me was yourself and Paul Ruse and people that have gone through the work and done the work and identified their own gaps and yeah. being so impacted by it, then go and work with you uh, to deliver it to other people. And so that's really impactful for me. Um, but let's talk about your journey into that because mm. that's what it was for you, running your own business at, at Aussie X, which has become X Movement. And, and so just talk about that kind of transformation for yourself and some of the realisations that your culture wasn't the greatest and, and you weren't having, we'll talk about real talk, but you yeah. weren't having real conversations with staff and with yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So my background was in, you know, played footy like yourself and went through the system and didn't get drafted, but then uh, moved into kinesiology, studied kinesiology in Vic Uni in Melbourne, did a student exchange to Canada, back and forwards a lot, found that there was footy here in, in Canada, played in the league, um, then came back in 2003, was lucky enough to start my own club, the Etobicoke Kangaroos, which is still around today, which is great. And in that 2003 year, grabbed a bunch of gear from the AFL back home, filled a bag, a hockey bag, filled it with footies and caught public transport to schools and taught kids how to play Aussie rules football because I was too young to rent a car. But I didn't know that. 
coming over. So that was a shock day one at the budget rental car company. Um, went home at the end of 203 with my tail between my legs, but saw 11,000 kids in this Auskick Canada program. And I love working with children. I love sport. School teacher for a few years and came back in 208 and started Aussie X, which is now X Movement. And still very proud to see Connor and the team and KB running an amazing company and doing some great work with youth. Uh, 208 to 210 was fly by the seat of your pants like a lot of startups. Ran a very fun culture. Um, very much ran by Chipper, my very good mate, and myself. And we just were, you know, two young Aussie fellas just going the distance most, most weeks and getting it done. And then the team sort of moved from five or six, seven you know, single digits to 18, 20, 25, and all the cracks in my leadership started to form primarily around an inability to empower decision-making, but underlying that was really an inability to have honest conversations with the team, which we now coin real talk, which is the nuts and bolts of the work we do today. And what that led me to was holding back when I had something honest to say, not saying it, taking the work off of the team with that early on mindset that everything was my responsibility, which I mistook for everything's my job to fix. And that's just the misconception that we see a lot of young leaders go through that it's my responsibility to fix everything. Well, not necessarily. There's a different way to look at that and we'll get into that. But I got quite unwell physically, mentally, emotionally, I was broken. And then, of course, we go on Dragon's Den and we start to get all this media exposure and the business starts to go, you know, crazier. Lucky for me uh, and the team <laughs> that Jared Murphy is now one of our co-founders at um, Performance by Design. We flew him over from England and I had followed Jez's um, career inside of Aussie Rules Football, working and specialising in building high-performing teams with a very deep understanding of having honest and open, constructive conversations about performance. And his success had won premierships, the company's success had won premierships with clubs, but had moved very heavily into the corporate sector as a result. Flew Jez over and took our then Aussie X team through the process. And November 1st, 2011 was the day that everything changed for me and understanding how to create safety, to have an honest conversation. And then once you get that in the open, the, what you can do with that and build a system to enable real talk um, became just a wonderful place to be around. And it, we had the fun part of the culture. We didn't have the accountability. We cared and loved each other a lot and had a lot of fun, but I hadn't created an accountability culture. When you marry those two things together, it becomes a great place. Two to three years later, I worked myself out of the company and moved into this work because I just loved it. I wanted to pass it on and let the whole world know you can create a fun and high accountability workplace. So that's where it all sort of started. Mm -hmm. So we'll, I want to loop back on your perception of culture because even that is quite unique mm -hmm. and what you pass on to yeah, corporate organisations and still pro sports teams now. But yeah. because I can see the tough stuff behind you, my book, and, and really that is yeah. about putting the magnifying glass on yourself as the leader and, and yeah. kind of going through some of the shit that leaders need to go through inevitably. Yeah. You mentioned the process that you went through. So, like, what was that like from an emotional perspective and and the, the confronting reality of, well, I'm a leader but I might not be either a great leader, I might not be performing 
like yeah. all the different variations of the same thing that you think about as you're on your walk, as you're on your run, as you're in the meetings. Yeah. yeah. Go, go a little bit deeper into that for me because this is quite confronting for a lot of leaders to go through. Yeah. But it's a necessary yeah. evil. Yeah. Because Jared and his work was really well known and we had a mutual, you know, he married my drama teacher from high school from one baggy, tiny little town in rural Victoria and, and also Marty Walter here in Toronto were mates, they were high school mates. So I had this connection to Jez and his work and I knew that it was foundational in honest, open conversations. And often, and even now we're doing the work, there's often a lot of honest conversations going on but they're me and you together when we should be me, you, and Jim or Sarah. So they should be more open, right? So I was doing plenty of that. I was reaching out to certain people but not having the right conversation. And then when I was in front of the right person and vice versa from the team to me, um, it was always this edge of not, it's not being said. And it just, you know, emotional and physical pain to the brain is the same. So I think about getting an injured hamstring and then recovering icing and not running and loading it up and damaging it more so you get better, so you can run again. These emotional sort of uh, injuries, if you will, of not telling the truth, right, and taking the work off the team and putting it on my shoulders and then getting out of integrity because I didn't deliver on my word, kept on pushing me down. And it was predicated on the fact that I wasn't, um, releasing the information that I needed and I knew that I had inside. And I, I didn't really know how to have that conversation because there's definitely a skill to it. It's a skill you can practice and learn. And so going through that day, um, the first thing we came to understand is that we thought we had a great culture. We got along great. Like we had heaps of parties and fun, but we want a high-performing culture as well. And so the first thing we learned was that Culture is not about perks, you know, ping pong and parties. <laughs> it's about behaviour. It's about the behaviours we accept and reward of each other. So by lunchtime of first day with Jez and the team, we'd created a pretty clear set of values and behaviours that we said would help us get and be the best we can be. Then in the second half of the day, we learnt more about each other through a personality profiling tool, which was great. It's one thing to learn about yourself, but it's also fantastic to learn about others and how personalities can work together to achieve more together because we're smarter and stronger together. So profiling in a team dynamics scenario was like, great, yeah, we love we love you, Cogs, because you're caring and supportive and we love you, Chip, because you're outgoing. And So all these things came up and go, oh, that's fantastic. And it lowers the pressure on you as an individual for attacking yourself and going, well, that's just my personality. That's the strengths I've got and these are the areas of growth. But then, to your point, um, first real talk exercise is actually putting the mirror on the leader. So in our work, um, we had the framework, we knew each other better, and then I leave the room and the team fill out the same assessment tool that I'm filling out for myself. And then we come in and the team provide me with the feedback from their sheet that mimics my sheet. And I remember sitting in the hallway <laughs> on the ground at the, at the office going, what have I done? Like I've chosen this bloke to come over from England, working with Boston Pizza and us, it was fantastic. 
And then I'm sitting out in the hallway just going, oh, shit, what are they going to say about me? And I got back in. I must have been sweating pink and all that and um, came back in. And then I'm going to forget all because when we talk about real talk, it's not just the tough stuff and it's actually the positive stuff first, like why we love working with you. And I got a couple of nuggets of like, oh, I didn't realise that the team saw me that way. That's surprising. Wow, that's good. So then I got sort of, you get juiced from that. So then when it came time for the areas of growth and what I could should you know, stop or start doing, I remember just being primed going, quick, I need, I need this information so I can be a better leader for you. Because at the end of the day, you, you, who defines you as a leader are the people that you lead. And if you don't elicit feedback and real talk from your team, you're most likely just to lead from what you think is the right thing to do, not what is the right thing to do. After that day, had a glass of wine and had a chat and I just did everything that Jez said. Conduct reviews, start meetings with check-ins, use your values and behaviours and your language and everything just started to, to flow from there. It's funny, isn't it, the... You know, a couple of things came up that I wrote down as you were talking there and, and you know, you're talking about the weight and it's really like the emotional toll or the emotional weight. Yeah. But what's really interesting with that, and you touched on this, is when people describe that, they describe a physical reaction. Oh, yes. So it's, the, the weight comes from the weight on my shoulders where you can f- actually feel an emotional weight literally on your shoulders or... In, in the chest, right, your chest tightens up or it might be that your head feels like it's spinning, which is you're just a sensation, but that is born out of emotional trauma. That's right. And yeah. and, and, and that's fascinating because, again, you, you kind of think about these things just as these, um, you know, the, just an emotion, but it actually manifests in a physical way. And, and that's why I talk about the weight in the book is because it is – a physical reaction um, and it, it literally destroys you physically just from these thoughts and these feelings. And then the other point there that was really, really great was, I mean, self-awareness is talked about in the wrong capacity because there's there's an internal element to it, but there's also an external element to it, yeah. which which you described again is yeah. it's what me thinking this is what people like about me and this is how I should act is very different to the the feedback that you got saying, no, no, we actually love that about you, Emil. Like we, so there's a, there's a social element to it as well. And, and this is where I think a lot of people get it wrong is because we've been on this, you know, Tim Ferriss optimize everything about yourself kick for the last five years. Everyone thinks they're self-aware, but they're self-aware intrinsically there's actually a social element to it that is required. 100%. So I, yeah. I, I tweet all the time, you know, like eight, 8 billion self-optimized people doesn't make a better society. There needs, <laughs> yes, to, right. be, there needs to be <clears throat> social interaction between them yeah. because that's the missing piece. And it's funny yeah. that you saw that. You needed that. No, no, like, Emil, we love this about you. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're sitting there saying, shit, I I had no idea that I was strong at that or that you loved that. I'll keep doing that. And and this is where I think that the power of, of particularly that real talk is, but also just the leader going through that process with their team and actually having those, 
those difficult conversations or yeah. just conversations. They don't even need to be difficult. No, that's, that's right. That, that's the thing we want to change. Like even the, even the term real talk, it's still, you know, part of our mission is to shift it to talking, <laughs> right? Like if there's one thing that impedes progress, innovation and innovation, it's people withholding information that can help the team get better, right, period. And it's rampant. We And, again, in this environment, this remote workforce, the threat of people withholding information because of feelings of uncertainty, unsafety, um, they don't know if their job's going to be there in a week. These are, these are you know, states that are not going to create high performance. You know, uncertainty and unsafety creates how do I protect? Now we know that that's not a high-performing state, particularly in team environments. So as leaders, we need to keep creating an environment that creates safety for people to um, feel okay to, okay to ask for help, put it on the table, even if they think the idea might be not that great, that idea could lead to the next one that, that seven steps later becomes the idea that actually, oh, that's gold, which is often the case when we collaborate, isn't it? We throw stuff out there and at the start, it's like, oh, that's a bit how you going, but then <laughs> it ends up being the impetus for the idea. And, you know, this... The, the loneliness, you know, you talk about in the book and, I, you know, to your point around the physical, it was, it was, I, my interpretation of it was like someone was sort of behind me with the hands on my shoulder and constantly sort of ever pushing me down, like, right? And then um, secondly, I remember being in some of our, team parties, 50, 60 people, people, you used to see the old office there, it was pretty good times. But sitting there going, I've, I can't get out what I really want to say. And it's not the right time, it's a party for starters, but I'm not saying what I need to say to, to help everyone get better and myself be better. And, and Carl Jung's work, you know, is quite profound. He has this quote that really resonates. Loneliness does not come from having no people around you but from being unable to communicate the things that seem important to oneself or from holding certain views which others find inadmissible. That's like really, when I saw that a year or two ago, and I've got it pinned up here in the office, it just was like one of those, ooh. And so now, I, you know, that pain that I used to experience, I, I want to help teams release that so that you don't have to hold it in because you're exactly right, the emotional weight of that it's like an emotional injury that if you don't get it out it stays right yet we repair a hamstring a physical muscle but we don't repair the emotional injuries which is often not telling the truth or what needs to be said to help the team get better no oh, that quote for starters hits home yeah that's yeah uh, yeah and then, yeah absolutely and, and it's to what you were talking about earlier around the missing piece, and this is what scares a lot of leaders and managers and people who have recently been promoted or uh, they're finding their way in leadership, is there's often an expectation that the others will show the transparency and the vulnerability and they will drive performance without me going first. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So, you know, as a, as a leader, the, the biggest probably realization you can have is that you're creating yourself in your team. You've just described yeah. that. You, you weren't able to share. Uh, 
um, for a variety of reasons. And so that then has a knock-on effect. So, you know, if, if you won't share, then no one else is going to share. And so, and again, this is, I think, the real power behind the methodology that you guys have at Performance by Design is that it involves the leader in those conversations as well. It implores them to shine a mirror on themselves, but also go first and start to share um, first because you create that pathway for the rest of the team to go, oh, shit, this is okay. And that then 100%. creates that safety like you're talking about. So let's go into that then. What, like, what, what does a, what does a high-performing team look like for you? What do they look like? What do they sound like? Someone who's really nailed real talk. Just describe that. Yeah, good one. The, the point about going first is so integral. We have a little saying, if you do, they do. If you don't, they won't. It's kind of a funky way of saying lead by example, but um, it just gave permission. You know, when we think about high-performing teams, we, we consider one where, to your question, where every team member feels safe to have real talk with any other member of the team. Right? That's that We keep it really, really simple. Behaviours, culture's defined by the behaviours you accept and reward of each other. So catch the good. Challenge the not so good by asking questions. And when you're not sure, ask a question. So get into the habit of that. So what a great high-performing culture looks like is they have turned that simple definition into a habitual behaviour. They catch the good, but they catch the behaviour, not just the result, right? That's absolutely paramount because we want high performance, but the is it the paradox or the misconception is don't worry about the outcome. Like, it'll look after itself. Bill Walsh, the score will take care of itself. Focus on behaviours and process and you'll give yourself the best chance to win. And in business, we often don't win a RFP or a sales pitch because we don't know that it's actually going to go to Cousin Vinny to another company. You know, the decision maker is completely out of our control, yet we do this amazing pitch, we rehearse, we do all these great behaviours, but if we just assess our performance on results, then we could go, oh, we failed at that pitch. No, 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 we didn't at all. Were our behaviours good? Did it give us every chance to? Absolutely. Because nothing worse than people inside of an organisation with no sort of accountability and recognition system behaving well and then over time not really knowing if it's the right behaviour and then changing a good behaviour, <laughs> right. right, because they, there's no – so, again, to the point, it's we – we catch the good and challenge the not so good and we ask each other questions to the point where all the heavy lifting early on through the sort of transformation or the process, it just becomes habitual, right? And then on top of that, what sort of supports it all is the language of speaking through the team's code. Mm -hmm. So you'll hear the values come out of their mouth when they praise performance. You'll hear the behaviours and in many instances, we help organisations create a purpose statement or a team identity statement, as many like to call it, in seven words or less that they can grab onto and use it as a filter for everything they do, you know. Every decision, every conversation runs through the code because that holds everything else up. The strategy, the ops team, the way we interact, the, the how we do business is 
held up by behaviour. So when you think about Peter Drucker's famous quote of culture eats strategy for breakfast, we'd even have people consider that that could be replaced with behaviours eat strategy for breakfast or team behaviours eat mm-hmm. strategy for breakfast. <clears throat> yeah. And there's also there's also this um, paradox, we call it the performance pendulum, there's this beautiful swing between um, support, care and love and accountability, challenging and pushing each other, right? Because I remember one of the first things that Jez always said to me, culture's a bit like a seesaw and now we use pendulum. It never really just is, you never get to it and then that, that's it. Like, oh, we've got a great culture. Okay, move on to the next project. <laughs> because it's behaviours and process and systems, it's always swinging either. It's either working for you or it's going down. It's a really slippery slope because if we step over the wrong behaviour a few times, three, four, five months down the track, it's now okay to turn up late. It's now okay to, you know, be a bit rude in meetings or not have your camera on in a virtual session. And so, you know, a big part of, you know, when you talk about what does it look like internally, the really great high-performing cultures don't let the small things become big things. They, they catch the good, they challenge the not so good and when they're not sure, they ask. And it becomes this sort of, Pretty cool place to be, yeah. Yeah, and it's that hyper-focus on us. I've told you this story before. Recently I heard someone refer to their culture as an award-winning culture. And I I sat there and thought, what the fuck is an award-winning culture? Like how how do you compare the two? Like that, that, that is just taking something that we're, we're trying to get right and turning it into a competition, which makes us look at our competition. It looks outside the industry. And the second that we turn that focus external, we take the yeah. focus off us and our behaviours, which is what we're talking about. And, and we start to compare. We might adapt. We might make changes because we think someone else is doing something better, but we don't understand that context. And so it just completely wipes out the whole point of all this work that we're doing (laughs) in that it's not a competition. We need to get our behaviours, we need to get our communication right. Um, Absolutely. You touched on something earlier that I I think might be really interesting for people is you said that when real talk and when culture is at its optimum and high-performing, anyone is able to communicate and challenge the behaviours of anyone else on the team. So let's talk about that because that is going to be confronting for a lot of people, but it it works when the rookie or the new hire can walk in and say, hold on a second, you might be the manager, but we agreed to this set of behaviours and and you're not sticking to them. And so uh, this is what I mean. It's going to be confronting for a lot of people. A rookie can walk in and challenge the most senior person on the team and say, that's not, I saw what you did there. It's not a behaviour that we agreed to. Yeah, absolutely. And that that starts by the organisation company team being very clear on what their code is. So what are those, what are, what is our purpose, values and behaviours? And that's, articulated in behaviours because they're actions. So to digress one little bit, 
values, our values are our, our purpose and values are our epicenter for making decisions, right? Particularly under pressure. <laughs> so then once the decision's made, we take an action, we behave, and our behaviours get our results. So why that's important is we've got to get very clear on our code. So when that new team member comes in, the first thing, A, we recruit through our code, right? We use that as the filter to let the person in, right? Share stories of when you showed discipline and when they share their story, the interviewer is listening for behaviours, stories of behaviour of what discipline looks like for that person, right? Because disciplined to you might be up at 5am, 10k run, eat your porridge in the office half an hour early. Mine might be, if I get to my desk before 9am, I'm disciplined, <laughs> right? <laughs> so let's get clear on the behaviour that is disciplined. Right, right. yeah. So that's, that's really key. And then we've, we've let Sarah and Steve into the organisation. Now we onboard them and induct them through the code, right? And we show them examples of what discipline looks like inside of our workplace. So that recruiting and onboarding process is key through the code so that, you know, Sally and Steve come into the organisation and, and then what comes to life are the systems that the company have put in place to create safety, to enable real talk. So when Steve sees or Sally sees something that they think can be done better, the structure creates the safety for them to lean into that and feel safe to go, yeah, I heard what you said there, boss, John and Jane. Um, if it's okay, can I challenge that? Nothing better than asking a question to challenge something too. That's a really good trick. That was, the, that was my go-to early in my journey and still is. Can I challenge that? Yeah, sure. Well, now we're on. Safety's been, we know we're speaking the same language, right? So um, it really comes down to the leaders creating the code with the with the team and then putting systems in place that enables the safety to have real talk. And then if you just stick to the system, we just get better at it over time. You touched on something there that is close to my heart, which is recruiting, and we've had a million conversations yeah. about this offline. And and for anyone that's been following me closely, I before I got to the tough stuff, my the my second book idea was to talk about what you've just described there, where organisations clearly don't recruit through their culture code at at the moment. They still recruit through results. So the old methodology of measurement yep. and and so it's great to have this culture code. It's great to have it up on the website, have your four words. Um, you know, you can describe your four words, but unless it gets to the point where that is the entry point to your whole organisation is treated with the yep. same seriousness that the rest of your behaviours and your culture are, it's going to all fall apart because you add one new member and guess what? New culture. Yeah, because it really it's a, it's a new human being has come into that group. And so to your point, unless you induct people, unless you describe what's been going on, what the company values, what the behaviours are that they value and why, and why there's not this hyper-focus on, you know, the, the quarterly results. Yeah. 
it's not going to work. You, you'll have momentary culture, but you won't have sustained yeah. success with that culture. And yeah. I get asked this all the time, like how, how can I get to know what a, a company's culture is really like? And you hit on it before. Like the, the simple answer is when you're sitting there in the lobby about to be interviewed, you go and ask the receptionist how mm. he or she, what, what behaviours they do to match up with, with the corporate statement about what their culture is, right? Uh, and then if, you, if you're in the break room in between, in between your two interviews and you're having a glass of orange juice, you ask the person that comes in there, how do they do it? And if you can't get a consistent message, like there's a red flag right there because you'll, you'll be sold by the, by the person interviewing you. We've got this great culture. But unless you can touch yeah, it, yeah. feel it, and see it from the people that are in there on a day-to-day basis, it's not what they're selling you. And I think that's the big gap that we have right now is that one, one culture is being sold to people that's not the actual culture. Yeah. That, and, the, again, to go all the way back, this misconception, and I, and I think it's partly social media and the ins that we have now to the Googles and the, Nikes and you see the slides and the free food. And like I say, the, the parties, perks and people, right? Yeah. Now that can, and even Zappos, right? You know, sad to see Tony Shago, who is such a legend in this space, who, 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 to his credit, made it, made it prove that happiness leads to success and not necessarily the other way around. <laughs> but you, you can have all the party and all that sort of stuff. But when you go deep inside of there, they also had fantastic metrics. You could party for five hours of your day and work three, and as long as you were helping your teammates get better and getting your results, so that's the other thing, right? Like in great, the, in the great teams we work with, people show up to do and play their role, and when they can, how do they help their mate be the best they can be, right? But this misconception that, it, and I've had many of these experiences where I'm like, oh, how's your car? It's fantastic, great culture, great culture. Cool, cool, cool. Um, so you've called us up. What's going on? Our performance is terrible. Right, okay. Well, then, then I go then, well, then maybe your culture's not that great because, again, if behaviours get our results and our culture is defined by the behaviours we accept and reward of each other, then you've got a fun culture. It's good to be around and we'll have good parties on a Friday night and play a few ping pong games and, and the perks might be good. But... I think a great culture is where you are challenged and supported to be the best you can be and you reciprocate. Now, if there's slides and popcorn and all that sort of stuff, there's another P for us, then that's great. Like, bring it on. It's like Flight Centre, high-performing culture through the through the internet boom. They kept on growing. They kept on, you know, sad to see them challenged now, but through that internet boom where everyone's booking flights online, they doubled down on stores and back their people and their culture and their beautiful structures, they have parties, you know, to beat all parties. So it's, it can be a combination, but if it's not supported and and, and viewed as behaviour, then you're, you're taking the chance on your culture by thinking that perks and parties will produce good results. <clears throat> Talk to me about the kind of shift in mindset that's required here as well. So mm. the, the, the outstanding issue, I think, in culture, which I know you see on a day-to-day basis, is 
incentives. So when you start to talk about behavior, you have to include incentives in that because they drive behavior. It's clear. It's what what literally hum, human behavior is based upon. So, uh, you know, the, the the boom in in the corporate space and in business in general has been off the back of pitting people against each other and using that as a motivator. But when we shift those behaviors and we move towards, you know, team performance, those incentives need to change as well. So just talk about some examples where you've seen that happen really well. Yeah. And I often... When we, when we go deep with companies and dissect and diagnose and all that sort of cool stuff, fundamentally their scoreboard is wrong, right? Um, because they're rewarding <clears throat> uh, individual accolades and remuneration and compensation, uh, there's, there's often no reason to help you make get better, right? And real estate's probably the prime example. Yep. Right, we are under this banner, uh, but we're all run our own book. So why would I help Jenny and John next to me get better when we're going after the same thing? So working with real estate agencies is really interesting because that's a real. We're starting from way back. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. those those courageous realtors, estate agents that work with us, they go on a journey. But as soon as because they're smart and they know how to make money. As soon as they realise that helping their mate get better makes them more money, there's this big like, whoa, and the, the massive domino at the start is knocked over and it's just a it's just an extra big, <laughs> it's an extra big domino when the scoreboard's wrong. And so after working with an organisation for three, six, nine months, we then start to, we've got the behaviours right, we've probably got the wrong people off the bus, we put the right people on the bus and in the right seats, which is a huge part of, any company and team success, as Jim Collins has drawn that into us, um, then we can go and look at, okay, are we rewarding? Is our reward system right? And often teams have to change that because, because by virtue of the code and living through it, and we're now going to make decisions through the code, if United, for example, is a value, well, then we need to challenge everything through the lens of United. And is this compensation plan, does this unite us or break us? Well, it, it breaks us because we don't share. Like when John and Jane win, they win. I don't win and vice versa. So it has to be challenged. And I, I love what even um, you know, X Movement has done over the journey um, with that very thing in mind where they, they, their whole compensation for their sales team is one pull together and and if you knock it out the park as an individual, you've got that opportunity as well. But first and foremost, it's the we. And then they just throw in cheesy awards for the end of the week, like right. whatever. And it's just, you know, shits and giggles because that matches their culture and it's that stupid visor that they, you know, that they wear and pay out on each other. But that drives them, you know, wild and crazy. At 358, someone gets a $300 free <laughs> sale and they, they win. They get nothing, nothing other than this stupid, dirty visor. But really what they're doing is we all win. I just get bragging rights for the weekend, you know. And so, again, it's not that difficult. It just takes a bit of courage and it just takes the use of your values to make decisions, particularly tough ones. 
Yeah, you're right. It's it's not particularly difficult, is it? And I, I think that would be one of my key messages to a lot of people and, and the message that I pass on. And I think I even wrote that kind of phrase in in the book is that it's actually small changes that are required. Like we can sit here and talk for an hour and say, you know, this and this and this and this, but in reality it's these these small little tweaks of the dial that, you know, most companies are almost there, but they just get that extra little bit of rocket fuel and that that extra little bit of alignment and, it, and it's off to the races. It's very incremental. We have a, we have a metaphor we love, the trust bank, you know, you like a bank account, you put dollars in. I think, I think we got it from Stephen Covey, the speed of trust. But uh, I know the brain Brown loves the marble jar, right? But the bank account is good because you go to the bank, you put money in, and sometimes you make a mistake and you spend too much money on a Saturday night, right? <laughs> <laughs> or you, you, go to the, you go to the cake for dinner three times a week when it should be once every month or whatever it might be. So we, we put dollars in the trust bank. We show our teammates we're talented and we can do our job under pressure. We've got the skills, we get the results, and we show our teammates that we'll do what's best for the team under pressure. You know, that shows up in behaviour. And then sometimes we make a mistake. Like, we're human. Like, yeah. I've marked the last year. And, but when, you, when, you, when you've got this sort of system, and I mean by system, I mean a review system, like, and even an accountability and recognition system, by the way, we start our meetings. What meetings are we having? And what's inside the meeting as well? A lot of teams actually have a good meeting cadence, but when they're in the meeting, it's useless. It's just one way. It's not two-way. There's no sharing of stories as to why we can trust each other. We don't use our values and behaviours to reward and challenge each other. These are simple structures because the reality is we're going to start the meeting. Best way to incorporate a new habit into your life is to attach the new behaviour to an existing habit. If you want to floss your teeth, well, just floss them after your brush. Like hopefully you're brushing every day, right? So if we want to start rewarding and recognising each other for the behaviours of our code, start our meetings with a code check-in. What did I do well this week? Who needs a shout-out? And what could I – like it's really simple and then you build that cultural muscle. So if you keep working it, it gets stronger. And this is the fault that a lot of, so going back to the point about the project campaign or the achievement, like we have achieved a high, whatever, award-winning culture. What, now do you stop? Because <laughs> if you stop and you stop doing those behaviours, next year you might be on the, the podium. You'll be, you'll be saying, geez, how, did, how did this happen? Last year we, we won an award for culture this year. There's gossip going on. No one's innovating. There's silos because we didn't have a system checking on behaviours and results. My favourite thing about the work that you guys do is that it's rooted in professional sports and it comes from professional mm. sports. And so, you know, the, the obvious example being, you know, one of the, the co-founders, Paul Ruse, who was on Where Others Won't with myself and James Kerr um, mm. when we launched which was a gangbusters episode. If you haven't listened to that, you've got basically the the head coach that changed the AFL and, and his impact is still being felt to this day, you know, almost 20 years later in terms of what they did. And it was this system is what they they used. Yeah. And James Kerr, who wrote Legacy about the All Blacks and, and knows their culture in and out. Good if you haven't listened to if you haven't, <laughs> if you haven't listened to that episode, go and go and have a listen. But 
I the reason I keep coming back to this and I there's so much relevance here is because in sports and it doesn't need to be professional sports in sports this is what we've lived on we've been testing these ideas in market in real life for generations that all we've ever had is how to organize and utilize people and and what they're great at and how to communicate and so you know those those lessons are there they've been quality tested um and you guys are showing on a day-to-day basis. We can lift that up. We can translate it a little bit. We can move it over into the corporate space, into even to your point earlier, you know, real estate and and these construction and these areas that aren't yeah. traditionally associated with strong team cultures. Yeah, and it still fucking works. Yeah, <laughs> we're humans. Like we're in that. We're in that the the human game, right? It's a people um, business, man. People, that, and, that, and that's it. And, look, there's some things that we do with sport we can't do with corporate for legal reasons and there's, you know, even, you know, I mean, Simon Sinek brought it to the, to the game, the infinite game, the idea that, yeah, we can. there's a lot of correlations to sport, even musical orchestras. I love that as a metaphor for a team. We can't have 20 drummers, you know. We can't have five lead singers of a rock band. We can't have five goalies of an ice hockey team. Um, but also how important, you know, me as an individual shows up to be the best I can be and help me mates is so key. But the, and, and through Simon Sinek's work, the, the concept of the seasons and the championship and then there's a break where in corporate space, in, we don't get that. You know, in sport where the season ends and sometimes we go, oh, geez, I'm glad that season was over. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> we need the three months to go and lick our wounds, right? So then you get this downtime whereas the business world doesn't stop. So there's the game itself is structured a little bit differently. But how we get the most out of ourselves as individuals in the context of team, those dynamics remain. Those dynamics of little and often checking in, how are you, mate? How can I help you? I need help. Do you need help? Like those little belonging cues that are so key to creating safety um, are all the same. Like through COVID, you know, the, the sports teams we worked with, little WhatsApp groups in little pods, six and one leader, you know, uh, making sure that we're staying very connected and, and getting that connection piece right because, as I said many times before, if if people aren't feeling psychologically safe, it's it's the worst thing for performance. It it it's it goes every, it goes biologically against everything that we want to create great team performance, right? If I'm in protection mode, I'm not thinking about helping you be better, right, while I'm doing my job. And that's that's why sport is such an interesting um, thing to watch because you can see a team member, you know, take off from her opponent and help another opponent when it's not really her job but she does it in real time because it's the best for the team. That understanding alone is huge for the corporate space because, I mean, so many times when we work with a team, there's, oh, you know, what's holding us back? Well, we're siloed. I don't, the communication between this department to that department is no good. So then I'll ask the question, does it need to be? And they go, oh, yeah, absolutely. So you're like, okay, well, then let's, let's put a system to communicate and stick to it. And that's half the battle, right? 
because it's bloody boring. Like a lot of high performance is actually bloody boring, like going boring. and doing yep. the same thing over and over and over again. That's why it's tiring. Leadership is tiring. Like catching behaviour, like, oh, gee whiz. But when you, to your point before, when you do it well, the team self-manages. And that was what, that was the load off. Like uh, I just still get physical feelings of like joy when I'd come into Aussie X meetings um, and I'd hear of these new things going on in the company and the impact on the children and all that sort of stuff. And I'm like, whose idea was that? That's unreal. Like, and you become a spectator inside your own organisation because the systems basically share stories why you can trust each other. When you get this right, it frees up time from managing and allows you to lead. Yeah. 100%. This is this is the key thing. And, you know, I think that's really where a lot of leaders are trying to get. They're, they're trying to move out of that management and that, you know, just ticking off timesheets and disciplining people to actual leadership where you can be really forward thinking, you can drive from a real leadership perspective rather than a management perspective. And yeah, so to your point, you go through this kind of initial hardship, but then it becomes self-fulfilling. Yeah, it does. It does. Where, where can people find you and, and your work and, and what should they look at when they get there? Yeah, good question. Um, so our website is performancebydesign.co, not com, uh, .co. Um, we have a really cool, uh, Ruzi's famous in Australia for being uh, one of the main guys on the couch, which was a free show on, a, I think, Monday night for many, many years. So now that he's out of the media and, and working with us full time, uh, we created the Culture Couch. So on the website, there's a link at the top of the website where you can see um, actually, you're on the couch. You're on the virtual couch. Um, so they're really good episodes where Ruzi and Jez on the self interview often famous Australian athletes, coaches, leaders in the corporate space, clients of ours. Um, wonderful episode on some great ladies doing some work in the inclusion and diversity space. It's a wonderful. So that's a, a, a YouTube show and a podcast. So that's worth looking at. Um and that's where most of our gold is. We also do a weekly Culture Couch Live, which is pretty cool. Um, we just jump on Zoom, all four of us, and do wherever we are in the world because often we're not in anywhere near each other. And we just <laughs> wrap up on one or two questions that the community come to us with. And they usually go for 10 to 15 minutes. They're really cool. Um, bit of banter in that, which is fun. But, again, you know, really just trying to bring, bring to understand it, you know, when we look, think about culture, think about behaviour, think about real talk and think about the systems to support real talk and that's predicated on safety. And when you do that right, um, yes, the, the the work of the leader becomes more enjoyable and that's the that's really the gift, I think, because there's, there's, there's courage in leadership, right? But then so many of us, and I know I hit this massively, we get to a certain point and we've bottlenecked ourselves. We've become the, the, the problem. So then the work is challenging because then you've got to break down your gaps to rebuild. But like you say, you do the heavy lifting early. Um, there's just joy. And, and, and the trickles down, final comment, what I love about it 
is it trickles down to family. And, you know, stressed parents at work create stressed, anxious kids. And I think there's a duty of care for leaders to create an environment where we, we can work together and we can produce results and we can have a great life doing it. Um, and being from education, I, you know, you can feel the pain of the child when their parent's not around, you know. So that's, there's a little bit of a side thing for me that's, that's deep in the purpose of why we do what we do. Yeah, mate, it won't be news to you. Uh, I, I love you and I love your work. And, and again, just to kind of tie it back to my initial comment on, you know, why I wrote about you was that you've been through it. You know, there's a lot of mm. leadership consultants and I see them online and you can yeah. point to them and say, you haven't done a damn thing. You haven't <laughs> been through any of the pain, um, whereas I, I watched you go through the journey um, <laughs> over a long time and, and, and deal with the confronting realities. And, and to your point earlier, it just became this thing that you're like, I have to share this. I have mm. to help other people. And so um, that's why I'm rooting for you and why I think everyone should jump on performancebydesign.co and, uh, and get oh, in touch with you. Get in touch with you there as well. Love it. Emil Studham, thank you, mate. We finally did it. You're about <laughs> guest, guest number 100 or so, but um, we finally got there. It's the most patient I've ever been for anything. It must be, <laughs> that must show the love I have for you because um, I, I don't know, my wife's probably the better person to ask if I'm patient or not, but um, no, it's been great and I've been really pumped to jump on it. But I also think it's, it's quite timely. I think the book's wonderful and, you know, even the first quote from Brene Brown, studying leadership is way easier than leading. Like, yeah, that's, that's really, yeah, it hits it on the head, doesn't it? So the timeliness of the book and this conversation I think hopefully will help um, your listeners um, and help leaders become better leaders because we, we need it. Leaders matter. I really do. Yeah. I mean, that's why, that's why I wrote the book is, is yeah. there's it, to your point on kids, it's kind of reached this point where we really need to think about this and acknowledge it. And, yeah. and we've, we've just been through what, what America put the world through with yeah. their, their leadership decision. Um, and, and we're just seeing that over and over and over again. And to your point, it really now filters down to like our kids and, and what they're yeah. growing up with and the trauma in their lives and, and things like that. So, yeah. yeah, man, amen. Keep doing great work. And, yeah, Beautiful, if you're mate. listening in, if that's resonated for you and you've listened in, uh, performancebydesign.co, jump on there and get in touch with Emil and the boys. Mate, thank you. Thanks, Cody. Thanks for listening to the show. Don't forget to visit codyroyal.com for more details or to subscribe to my newsletter. And the tough stuff, seven hard truths about being a head coach is now available across the world on Amazon. See you next week.